Amen, amen. Well, good morning, church. Happy New Year. Uh, as Dee said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central and excited to be with you. Excited that 2020 is behind us now. Amen. And isn't it, isn't it great that now that 2021 has started, everything goes back to normal. Isn't that how it works? That, no, apparently not. Wouldn't it be great, though, if we could just hit reset and everything would go back to normal? And yet the reality is the pain of 2020 just seamlessly spills over into 2021, doesn't it? And although there seems to be a light at the end of the tunnel, we've still got a long way to go before things are normal again. Not to mention the fact that we're going to be grieving the losses of this year for quite some time. My wife and I last night were just together processing some of the losses of 2020. And it's in moments like these that we become keenly aware that the world is not as it should be. And our text this morning is written to a group of people who are experiencing something very similar to what we have been experiencing in 2020, who are keenly aware that the world is not as it should be. I want to begin by reading verse 22 in the previous chapter. Here the prophet is painting a picture of the suffering that God's people were enduring. He says, But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. Hashtag quarantine. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Now, the good news, church, is that God has something to say to those of us who are struggling, and that is what our passage is. It's God's message to those who are suffering, who are experiencing trials and tribulations. It's God's message to us. And so in in light of this, I would like to ask you if you're able to stand as we read God's word in hopes that this message will be something that we all I think, need to hear. This is Isaiah 43. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 7. The prophet says, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And Through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not. For I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. 
The prophet Isaiah says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is true. And we really need to hear from you on this day as we begin this new year. We need a fresh word, a fresh reminder of your goodness and faithfulness, of your nearness, of your love and your mercy and your grace. Speak to our hearts, O Lord. Give us eyes to see, ears that can hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Now, I want you to be honest with me. The message of Isaiah 43 is is really not what you were hoping to hear, is it? You were hoping that God was going to say, I'm going to make it all better. I'm going to get rid of all the pain and the suffering and, and, and replace it with comfort and pleasure. That'd be nice. It's not what God says here. In fact, much to our collective chagrin here in Isaiah 43, God does not promise to make our circumstances better. He actually goes so far as to guarantee that our difficult circumstances will continue. Look again at verse 2. The key word here is when. God says when and not if. He says when you pass through the waters, when you walk through the fire. Clearly, God is implying that the floods and the fires are most certainly going to continue to come. Meaning that just because we finally have a vaccine doesn't mean that life's going to be just peachy from here on out. And we all know this to be true. The pandemic is really just the latest iteration in our suffering. There's more where that came from. But the good news is that God has a word for his people who are suffering. A message that's not a promise that the circumstances will get better, but rather a message of how to live in the midst of difficult circumstances. And in particular, he is saying here in Isaiah 43 that we must learn to live without fear. God is saying that although your circumstances certainly warrant it, you do not have to be afraid. Church, what are you afraid of in this moment? Are you afraid of losing your job? Are you afraid of not being able to get a job in this season? Are you afraid of losing a loved one? Or maybe afraid of never getting over the loss of a loved one? Are you afraid of losing it on your kids for the 1,000th time in this pandemic? Or not being able to handle another semester of virtual school? Maybe you're afraid that your marriage is going to fall apart or that this depression that has all of a sudden sprung up is not going to go away. Maybe you're afraid that the depression that has always been there but is seemingly unmanageable in this season is going to take over. Maybe you're afraid that your faith in Jesus won't last. Whatever it is that you're afraid of in this moment, whatever waters or fires that you are passing through, God's word for you is the same. He says, do not fear. Now, thankfully, the Lord doesn't just give us this command and expect us to figure it out on our own, but rather our text is God's gentle and gracious explanation of how to not be be afraid 
in the midst of incredibly difficult and trying circumstances. In order to do this well, there's two things that Isaiah offers us. First, he wants to show us the reasons for our fears. And then second, the remedy for our fears. The reasons for our fears and the remedy for our fears. So let's look first at what are the reasons for our fears. may sound like a a silly question, but it's important to recognize here right off the bat that according to our text, the source of our fear is actually not our circumstances. Now don't misunderstand me by saying that the fires and the floods are not worthy catalyzers of fear. They are. However, what our text is saying is that what's really driving our fears, what's, what's, what's fundamentally scaring us is something much deeper than our circumstances. It's something much deeper than COVID-19. And what our text reveals is that ultimately what causes fear in a Christian is doubt. What ultimately causes us to be afraid is when we doubt God's favor and when we doubt God's presence. I want to remind you again of the context of our text of Scripture. Isaiah is writing to a people who is about to be captured and taken into exile. And the reason they're going to be taken into exile is because of their unwillingness to respond to God's goodness and faithfulness to them with obedience. And so our text is written so that it can be taken with God's people into exile and then read when they can really resonate with verse 22 that I read before, a people who are plundered and looted, trapped in holes, hidden in prison. And the reason this text is so important and so incredibly timely is because God knows that when his people go into exile, the first thing that they are going to deal with is they are going to doubt in that moment whether God really loves them and whether he is still with them. Church, in what ways have you doubted God's favor and presence over the past 10 months? In what ways have you doubted that he truly loves you and that he is near? What our text reveals is that it is those doubts that are at the root of all of our fears. And it's those doubts that we must deal with in order to overcome our fears. Which brings us now to our second point. What is God's remedy for our fear? And here's, this is the heart of God's message in Isaiah 43. He's saying that although you are underwater, even though the flames are all around you, you need not be afraid. Why? Because you are favored by me and I am near. Now let's look first at the evidence of this, the evidence of God's favor. I've been married close to 12 years now, and I'm constantly, or maybe that's an overstatement, I often am thinking about how to communicate my favor to my wife. I'd highly recommend Gary Chapman's book on the five love languages if you aren't familiar with it. In his book, Chapman encourages you to study your spouse, to to learn the way that your spouse prefers to receive love. We do that so that we can learn to communicate love to to our spouse in the way that most speaks to them, that is most convincing. You see, God recognizes that because of the trials and tribulations that his people are going through, they really need to be convinced that he loves them. 
And the good thing is God actually doesn't need to read Chapman's book. He doesn't need to study us because as verse 1 and 7 remind us, God created us. We are his creation. He knows us more intimately than anyone has ever known another. And and in his infinite knowledge, he knows what would best communicate his love to us, that which would be most convincing for us. Look again at verse 2. Here is God making his argument for his love for us. He says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. You see, our love language is redemption. God knows there is nothing that would more convince his people of his love towards them than this act of redeeming them. But what does it mean to be redeemed by God? Webster defines redemption as the action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment or clearing a debt. And historically, this word was used in reference to material possessions, like a piece of land or maybe some livestock. However, the message of the Bible is that God is in the business not of redeeming property, but people. And we see this redemption of God's people all over the scriptures. We see this redemptive work at play in the sacrificial system that exists in the Old Testament where the debt of sin is cleared by the blood of bulls and goats. We see the redemptive work at play in the Exodus story where God's people are set free from slavery through the blood of the firstborns of all the Egyptians. We see the redemptive work at play in God's immigration practices where aliens and strangers are welcomed and accepted into the family of God. But no doubt the greatest place that we see the redemptive work of God is on the cross. The cross which is so beautifully hinted at in our text. Look again at verse 4. God says to us, Because you are precious in my eyes, and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. I give Egypt as ransom, verse 3, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. What is God saying here? Now remember, according to Webster, redemption isn't free. It comes with a price. And what God is saying here is that there's no price that he is unwilling to pay. I would give up countries for you, exchange people for you. No ransom is too high, no price is too great. And we know this to be true because many years later, God actually paid the redemption price. And it wasn't Egypt or Seba that he gave in ransom, but rather his one and only son. The clearest and most beautiful picture of God's favor towards us that there ever was. As one commentator says in reference to this verse, verse 1, he says, We cannot comprehend what an inexhaustible depth this word, Gaal, translated, I have redeemed thee, contains within itself. Redemption, redemption, redemption. That should be our creed, our theology, our distinctive character, our daily song of praise, our secret wisdom, our pearl of great price, our invaluable jewel, our one in all. May we know nothing but the wounds which have redeemed us. May we look at nothing but the blood which has saved us. May I think nothing else, see nothing, feel, hear, love, honor nothing else than thy love and thee. Redemption. The most powerful argument that we are loved by him. 
And when we ponder that reality, the glory and grace of our redemption, then we are able to fear not in the waters and the fire, to fear not in the midst of a global pandemic because his redemption convinces us, verse 4, that we are precious in his eyes, honored and loved by him. Do you believe that to be true? Because if you do, there is much that you can endure in this life. I found this quote in my study this week, and I really like it. I think it's helpful. It says, much can be endured if we have a sense of destiny born out of a particular identity. Say that again. Much can be endured if we have a sense of destiny born out of a particular identity. You see, our identity is beloved by God. And born out of that identity is our destiny to walk with God in faithfulness and obedience. And if you believe that, you can endure much. But it's not just God's redemption that helps to alleviate our fears. The other remedy for our fear in the water and the fire is knowing and believing that God is near. While I was in seminary, I learned about a certain type of counseling called narrative therapy. It's kind of a Christian twist on the empty chair method. And the idea in narrative therapy is that uh, the therapist will encourage the client to revisit the memory of a, a trauma in one's life. But this time, the person is encouraged to imagine that Jesus is in fact present with you in that traumatic experience. Now, I'm not a counselor. I'm, I'm not here to advocate for or against this therapeutic technique, but I do think that Isaiah 43 is God's invitation to do some narrative therapy. And I know that the breadth of trauma that's in this room and certainly listening online is great, and, and please don't hear me in any way trivializing or minimizing your pain, yet I think God is inviting us, encouraging us to look back at the pain and trauma in our life and consider whether or not God was in fact present with us in that pain. Church, is it possible that God was in fact graciously present with you in the waters and in the fires? No doubt I hear your objection. If God was there, why didn't he stop it? And to that question, uh, the question that has befuddled Christians for quite some time, I don't have a a good answer. But it does make me think of John chapter 11. If you remember in John 11, Jesus' dear friend Lazarus has just died, and Jesus is coming to be with the family, to be with Lazarus' sisters. And, And don't miss this, Jesus is coming with the knowledge that he is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's about to wipe away everything that is a reason for sadness, for pain, for suffering. He's going to make it all better. And yet when Jesus meets Mary, the sister of Lazarus, and he sees her tears, he doesn't do what I likely would have done and just said, Mary, wipe it up. Come on, I'm going to fix this. It's going to be okay. There's no need to cry. But verse 36 says that instead Jesus weeps with her. 
wasteful, lavish tears. He meets her in her place of pain and suffering. I don't know why God often refuses to make the pain and suffering go away, but I am convinced that he is committed to being with us in the pain every single time. And I'm comforted by the fact that he weeps with and for us in our struggles. And so if you believe those two things, that God loves you more than anything in this world and that he will never leave your side, then and only then will you be able to pass through the waters and the fires of this world and fear not. I want to conclude with the story of a little boy who grew up in a little coastal town in a family that very much struggled to get by. And one day this little boy, his dad brought him home a special surprise. His dad had wrapped it up in in newspaper because the father had spent everything he had on the surprise and he couldn't afford any wrapping paper. And the boy tore open the wrapper and he found a little toy boat kit. It's a simple gift, but to the boy it was priceless. The boy immediately ran up into his room and began to put the boat together and he took him a few days to do it, but once he had assembled it, he begged his father to let him go out to the beach and try it out. Of course, his father let him and the boy would spend hours playing in the ocean with his little boat. Every day he would go to the beach and play and play and play. He loved his toy boat. One day he was out playing in the ocean and something terrible happened. The current began to pick up and it got a hold of the boy's boat and before he knew what was happening, the boat had been pulled out to sea. There was nothing that the boy could do. He'd lost his precious gift. The little boy cried all the way home. He had lost the most precious thing that he had in the whole world. It was days before he'd even come out of the house and finally he mustered up enough strength to to go out of the house and go into town and He's walking down the street and he passes by a storefront window and there in the window is his little boat. He couldn't believe it. It was gone, but now here it is right in front of him and he knows it's his because if you've ever built something by hand, you know every nook and cranny. So he walks into the store and he tells the store owner, you've got my boat. The store owner says, oh no, I don't. I found this boat and now it's mine and you are welcome to have it, but you'll have to pay full price for it. The little boy was dumbfounded. He had built that boat with his bare hands. Now he has to buy it back. Couldn't imagine, though, the thought of being separated any longer. So he hurries home and he grabs his piggy bank and empties out every last penny, and he's in luck. He has just enough money to go and buy back the little boat. So he ran down to the shop and he threw his money on the table, and the storekeeper walks over and hands the boy his boat You've never seen such joy on a little boy's face. And the little boy's walking down the street back to his house, and he's holding this precious boat in his hands, and he says these words. He says, I made you, and I lost you. I found you, I bought you, and now you are mine, oh, mine. Brothers and sisters, Our Heavenly Father, he made you, he lost you, but he found you, 
and he bought you back with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And now he speaks over you and over me. You are mine, oh mine. Would you pray with me? Father, we just need to sit under those words and hear them. And they need to be louder than the voices of the enemy, the voices that are inside our head, the lies that we so often hear. We need to hear you say that we are yours that we have been bought with a price, the blood of your son, Jesus. We belong to you. And we are precious in your eyes, loved by you. And Father, would that reality, would that truth land in such a way that we might be able to endure much, knowing that you are with us, you will never leave us, and your favor is certain, trustworthy, and true. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.